Today, another Under Our Feet bonus episode about ongoing geologic processes in Wisconsin. When most people think of geology, I think they often think about geologic hazards like earthquakes, volcanoes, or tsunamis. In Wisconsin, the geologic hazard that affects us the most, especially in a changing climate, is flooding from heavy rainfall events. So, I talked to two people, a scientist and a rhetorician, and no, that's not the start to a very inside academia joke. I talked to them about flooding in Wisconsin's driftless area and the interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary work they've done to understand its causes and impacts. If you want even more background on this region, before you start this episode, go back and check out episode 9, all about the geology and history of the driftless area. Before we get started on this episode, though, a reminder that you, yes I mean you, can help support the show by joining us on Patreon. There's a link on our website, uofpod.org, where you can subscribe to Patreon and give to the show. In return, you get some cool benefits, like t-shirts, bumper stickers, or even your own mini-episode. The first batch of those Patreon mini-episodes will be coming soon. You can also get shout-outs on the show. Today, that shout-out goes to Rita Stevens and Daniel Pauly, who have both recently joined the Under Our Feet community. Thanks, Rita and Daniel. And now, on to our interview. As you listen, keep these questions in mind. What do we gain when we add a human perspective to a seemingly scientific issue? Or the other way around, scientific perspectives to human issues? What's really the boundary between the two? So I guess if uh, we could start off with the two of you just introducing yourselves. Go for it, Caroline. Sure. So I am Caroline gotchak Drushki. I'm an associate professor of composition and rhetoric in the Department of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am Eric Booth. I am an associate research scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Agronomy and Civil and Environmental Engineering. Okay, and so I think the the obvious question here is we have a professor of composition and rhetoric in the Department of English and then a, a research scientist, and I'm talking to both of you about one topic. So I, I guess I wonder if you could spend a minute talking about like how you came to meet each other and, and come up with ideas to work on collaboratively, um, if that seems like a good place to start. Sure. You, you tell it pretty well, Caroline. You, I'll let you start. Okay, I, I will kick it off. So Eric and I actually met a few years before I even joined the faculty at UW-Madison. So we were brought in as kind of guest experts to a group of researchers out of Harvard Forest who were having a workshop at Dartmouth and they had a few guests come in to talk with them about scenario development and thinking about qualitative and quantitative methodologies. And so I drove up to that meeting from University of Rhode Island where I was at the time. And we had a sort of getting to know who was in the room exercise where you had to write your name and draw a little symbol of yourself next to it. And I think I drew my name and I drew a little watershed (laughs) figure like a bunch of streams and a little watershed network and someone else in the room had written their name and a little canoe and I went to find the canoe guy 
who lo and behold was Eric Booth. And so we started talking, you know, that weekend. I don't know if that was 2014-ish, maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, we started talking and it turned out that Eric was a hydrologist who had lots of interests in narrative and in people and how people think about water. And I am a rhetorician with a background in ecology who's super interested in hydrology and how people talk about water and how water influences people. And so I think it was kind of natural, um, a natural progression of just kicking off a conversation then and staying in touch, even when we were at different institutions to just kind of think about ideas, you know, every six months or every year or so. And then when I had the opportunity to join the faculty at UW-Madison in 2017, I emailed Eric and said, hey, guess what? I might be coming to UW-Madison, we should work together. Um, so I think it was really, for me, it was really an issue that our, um, our interests just aligned really nicely. It wasn't a matter of trying to find a project together. It was like, we were just both really into talking about a lot of the same things and coming from different disciplinary perspectives, but very complementary interests and approaches, I'd say. Yeah, and I, at, at that time, so the reason I was at that workshop initially was I was working on a, a project called the Yahara 2070 project. And it was meant to be this look in, out into the future all the way to 2070 okay. for the Madison area. So the Yahara watershed. And I was working on that project mostly on kind of the modeling side of things. And we were trying to integrate narratives and like these qualitative scenarios, like starting with a story with like characters and a plot. And then my job was to translate those stories into like model inputs. And so that was kind of the area I was in and why I was there. But this was after my PhD and I was doing a lot of kind of watershed modeling and wasn't doing as much work in kind of streams and floodplains like I had uh, earlier in my career. And so I was kind of missing that aspect of my research. And so it was very well timed that Caroline eventually came to UW-Madison because that's what she was interested in doing. And it made a nice excuse for me to go back into the Driftless area, which I actually didn't tell her to do. That was other people at UW-Madison <laughs> suggested yep. the Driftless area as a study area. So it was, yeah, it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, when I got to Madison, I talked to Paul Robbins, who's the Dean of Environmental Studies, Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and a famed geographer and political ecologist. And um, he knew that I had been working on questions about dams, dam removal, community engagement, rivers, restoration. And he's the person who said, hey, you need to drive out to Lafarge, Wisconsin. You need to talk to Marcy West. She's the director of this place called the Kickapoo Valley Reserve. This story will blow your mind. Go find her. And so I did that. <laughs> and, and then um, because Eric and I had, had already been talking about things we were interested in, and there seemed to be kind of obvious, interesting questions in the Kickapoo Valley. And it turned out, lo and behold, Eric had worked in the Pecatonica watershed and had on kind of similar questions and interests that really um, grew very nicely into the first of our projects together. Awesome. And so in the the timeline you've laid out so far, this has brought us like to 2017. And then 2018 is the summer of big flooding in the Driftless area. So maybe before we go too much farther, y'all could talk a bit about that summer of, that was the summer, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
And what yes, what what happened in the Driftless area in in 2018 that sort of probably catalyzed a lot of what you've worked on since then? You want, you want to take it away, Eric? I, you can, yeah, I'll go first, and then um, I'll hand it back over to you. So, um, yeah, I, without going too much into the the history, like 2018 didn't come out of nowhere. It was kind of part of a growing trend of increasingly frequent heavy rainfall events leading to, to big floods. And 2018 just ended up being the largest of a recent string of, of kind of wet events. Um, but it ended up being the flood of record in a lot of, uh, of the region's streams. And so that caused obviously a lot of devastation to the local communities, a lot of infrastructure damage to roads. And at the time we had just started this project together monitoring a stream restoration project. So we, we were kind of focused on that site and, and the effect of the flood on that site as well. And then, yeah, so I, then maybe Caroline, you can take over the stories aspect. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I like to tell people that we were interested in studying stream restoration and then a flood happened. So then we were studying a flood and a lot of floods and a history of floods after that when our stream restoration site that we were looking at got totally flooded out, you know, in real time as, as we were um, interested in it and studying in it. And so that really shaped, you know, that big event, August, 2018, and then September, 2018, like a week later, really shaped our kind of stream restoration interests and research that we were starting up in the Kickapoo Valley. And then, um, not long after, I think in December of 2018, so a few months later, I was contacted by a wonderful writer in the area, Tamara Dean, who was living in the West Fork of the Kickapoo at the time. And she was a board member of the Driftless Writing Center based in Viroqua, Wisconsin, a small nonprofit focused on supporting writers in the area. And she reached out because she and some of her colleagues at the Driftless Writing Center, who had all been affected personally by the flooding in August and September of 2018, they had an idea to sort of support their fellow community members to deal with floods and respond to the floods through story. And they really wanted to reach out and get a group of people together to write about or record and talk about their stories dealing with floods. Um, and so they were interested at the time in applying for funding to the Wisconsin Humanities um, to kick off that project. And Wisconsin Humanities, thankfully for my sake, asked community members to be partnered with a faculty member in the humanities who can help support a project. And Tamara reached out to me because folks knew that I was kind of around and working with Eric and had connected with folks at the Kickapoo Valley Reserve and had an interest in the area and had connected with people in the area. And so I signed on to support that. That um, project was funded. It's called Stories from the Flood. It has since had lots of other forms of funding and support over the years. Um, but we started working together to collect oral histories about flooding in kind of early spring 2019 at that point. And the um, project at this point has gathered over 100 stories of flooding. Those stories have been all kind of sorted out, bundled together, transcribed, indexed, and handed off to the oral history program at the UW-La Crosse Murphy Library and at the Vernon County Historical Society. And so um, that kind of narrative focus, that story focus, 
really has come back around, I think, to connect with some of the biophysical interests that Eric and I had and were exploring. And we've really been working, you know, over the past four years now, I guess, uh, five years, really very purposefully to try to highlight narrative and story and to think about how that can be put in conversation with some of the hydrologic and hydraulic modeling that Eric does, really thinking about kind of field-based studies of how streams in the region are changing and to think about what happens when you put all those pieces together. Awesome. Yeah, I want to come back in a little bit to like what that ends up looking like. But but before we, you touched on this earlier, but I maybe want to ask you to reflect a little bit more on the driftless area as a landscape and a place to do this work. Because I mean, I think the driftless is a place that draws people in. And yeah. um, but I guess I, I guess I was curious what what y'all like about it. What brings you there? Once once Paul Robbins said go there, like what's what's kept you there? Do you want to go first, Eric? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's sometimes seen, I feel like, as annoying when outsiders say that it has like this mythical quality to it, but it, it really does. Um, there is this kind of mythology that is kind of swirling around the Driftless area. And I mean, part of that is just, I think, a natural like human reaction to these kind of rugged landscapes. And I think about like the cultures that um, kind of form in those types of landscapes, like it, it's easy to get kind of lost and, and hide if you want to hide. And I think that leads to some really interesting <laughs> cultural development. And that's not exclusive to the Driftless area for sure. So that I think is part of it. And it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful landscape, which obviously is attractive. But I think um, what makes it kind of unique is uh, it is it has like this really interesting geology to it, right? So it's got these flat lying bedrock layers. And it, it, so it's not mountainous, which you've already discussed. And that leads to this dissected landscape where you have kind of like a two story system of agriculture. You've got the uplands that are developed for the most part and then the valleys. And so that combined with kind of its steep qualities has, has made it challenging to farm. And it's also led to it being susceptible to erosion and flooding. And then on top of that, you've got that luss, that kind of blanket of silty luss covering everything, which is susceptible to erosion as well. And, and, and so erosion and flooding kind of work together to like a positive feedback to make it even a, a more impactful or larger impacts associated with heavy rain. And, and then what grew out of that kind of uniqueness was also some really like amazing evolution in our science and our research and even kind of the art of land management and like conservation on private lands like there's just such a rich history starting with you know some of the earliest erosion and conservation scientists back in like the very early 20th century and then they in turn were learning from the most progressive uh, farmers in that region and so it wasn't just the the story of 
you know, the federal government coming in with their scientists and telling people what to do. There was very much a back and forth between what people had known uh, was working in you know, pockets of the landscape, definitely not widespread at that time. And then also working with scientists to kind of develop a foundation of knowledge. And then that foundation of knowledge was applied to other regions in the United States and even worldwide. And so that's more on the kind of conservation side of things. But then after that, there was even just big theoretical advances in geomorphology and hydrology that came out of this region because of its history and its susceptibility to flooding and erosion. So you had people like Stafford Happ in the 30s and 40s kind of start looking at floodplain sedimentation and its impacts. Um, and then you had Jim Knox at UW um, that picked up and expanded on a lot of that work. And yeah, and he even you know went back farther and looked at the full Pleistocene to Holocene and, and thinking about the role of vegetation change and changes in climate and how that might impact flooding and erosion. So yeah, it's just, and then Aldo Leopold, of course, too, enters into the fray in the 30s and 40s. And his mythology, I think, grew out of that region as well in, in thinking about how to incorporate kind of his broader like land management ideas to a, a place that was really suffering at that time. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but <laughs> it's just that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of so many amazing people that have looked at these very challenging questions. And I think we're now in this kind of new era where we're asking kind of another similar question, like how do we proceed with the challenge of flooding? And it's now seems to be much more driven by this warming climate rather than the land use changes that were dominant in kind of the early 20th century, but it's still a very similar question. And even though we have done tons of research, we're still, I feel like there's so much more to be learned. Yeah, I would echo everything Eric said. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, really an incredible, incredible history. It's an incredibly complex place, I think, which is attractive and interesting as well. There's a filmmaker I really love, Ryan Peterson in Alaska, who's talked about being interested in um, wild people in beautiful places. And I think that's a piece of the driftless for me. I think when I arrived in Madison, I, you know, was looking for other oddballs <laughs> in some ways. It's like, I, I am someone whose um, research and interests and self don't entirely fit categories in nice, neat ways. And I think that's something that uh, folks in the in the driftless sort of find acceptable and normal, which is which is quite comfortable and comforting in a lot of ways. I also tend to be drawn to places and situations and research questions that don't have easy answers. Like I'm really not interested in something that has a correct solution or kind of a right way forward. And so I think the driftless is interesting too in its complexity and its untidiness in its you know, 15,000 years of human settlement of, you know, just this really interesting and rich, long, long human history alongside its really interesting geologic history. 
And also I have been someone who's very kind of attuned to and interested in watersheds always and in the ways that watersheds tie people together, tie different ecologies together. And there is something really powerful, I think, in the Driftless where a sort of watershed identity is so visible, like interacting with people out there. Um, people understand that they live in a watershed, you know, and that you need to make decisions that impact your neighbors because they impact each other hydrologically. And like people get that and think about that and make decisions based on that. And that to me is, um, is powerful and I guess comfortable in some ways. It's like, that is the way I see the world. And so that seems useful to me that it's a place where you really understand who is upstream and downstream of you. And you understand that when you're making decisions, they're impacting people upstream and downstream of you. Um, and, and all of those things kind of just set up, I think, a, a nice context. Maybe one, one last thing is that um, particularly with some of the increased challenges of flooding and how people are responding to flooding, I have a lot of uh, disciplinary expertise and a variety of disciplines, but my original undergraduate training came in social work. And there is a piece of that that is present in my work, which is about, wow, people are dealing with this really, really challenging situation and um, a, a situation that requires understanding a biophysical system, understanding a social system, and also being kind of oriented towards equity and empathy and community-driven work. And so I think all of those things have come together along with finding, you know, a wonderful collaborator in Eric, someone I like working with and, and respect and appreciate. And, um, you know, all of those things come together on these projects. I was struck by when you're talking about people there understanding they're in a watershed. And you were talking earlier about at that conference, you drew the doodle of a watershed. But if you look on Google Maps at the Driftless area, you can see it. And I don't think you get that in other places. Like out here, that the, the, the same, you know, dendritic stream watersheds exist on the other side of the terminal moraines, but they don't, they're not as apparent, even just from a 30,000 foot view. It's, it's, it's right there. It's like you're yeah. the doodle. You, you can pick out the shape of the Kickapoo easily on Google Earth. You know, even if you don't know what you're looking at, you can tell that it, it forms this particular, you know, ice cream cone shape. Yeah. And then maybe you start to wonder why. And then that gives you an answer. Yeah. So before we, we get too far, I want to ask about like some of the, the science behind floodings. And I remember when I was at University of Minnesota, we had a seminar where a guy came in and was talking about flooding and was just irate about the idea of, you know, the 50 year flood or the 100 year flood and talking about floods that way. And so I guess I was hoping we could talk a little bit about in a world where the climate is changing, how do we talk about floods and what's true in that and what's maybe misleading? Yeah. So that's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of hydrologists and engineers I've come across that have been frustrated with the uh, kind of public discussion around uh, terms like 100-year flood. But I think we can turn the question back around on ourselves sometimes. And I don't think we've done a great job as a community of explaining it. Like it's, it's a fairly complex thing. So I think there's two parts of, of why it's confusing and frustrating. Like the first is just more of like a a statistical uh, misunderstanding. And I think it's the 100-year the flood 
some would argue it would be better called like the 1% chance flood, but that just doesn't have the ring to it. So it's all based on, you know, the, the idea that the probability of flooding is constant through time. And so if that probability is constant and you're interested in a large event, say the 1% chance of happening in any given year, that's gonna happen on average once every hundred years on average is the key thing there and we just don't live in a world where averages happen so it is certainly possible to get more than one of those happening even in you know the span of five or ten years and so that that can be true even you know regardless of climate change but the second part is related to climate change and that is this fundamental assumption in hydrology and engineering that has been with us for you know more than 100 years that the probability of flooding is constant through time is no longer true and you know that's something that's been said for you know i think well before i even started uh studying hydrology um it's this idea of of stationarity and and stationarity is now dead <laughs> And so how, how do we make sense of these, uh, this flood probability question when things are constantly changing? And there, as of yet, there's no like agreed upon solution to that in the engineering world. And the best that we can do is kind of update those statistics as much as possible. There's some movement towards like using climate models to look at what those statistics might be 50 or 100 years from now, but those are going to be, you know, full of uncertainties and uncertainties are hard to push into an engineering process or a design process where a lot of these statistics and probabilities like are operationalized. Like people always talk about building something to the 100 year flood level or 200 year flood level. Like that's really where the rubber meets the road in this discussion. There's others on campus like Dan Wright that have been thinking about this uh, for a while and has really done, I think an admirable job of connecting with practicing like engineers and communities that understand this issue and, and are trying to develop tools that can help estimate what those floods are into the future. But it's, it's just really hard. And so in that 2018 flood, do you know like what kind of a flood was that flood? Depends on where you, you are. I think the one, the, the benchmark that I like to use because it has a really long record is the Kickapoo River at Lafarge and there's another gauge at, at Steuben and I think it, it was definitely you know around the 200 year event but again that, that record has changed so much like there's been so much change through time that even that estimate is is not great like you could break that record up into three chunks at least starting in the 30s like you had the 1930s to the 60s maybe where you know, land use was still not great and then you had 
kind of this period after soil conservation. And so flooding uh, flood frequencies were, were much less and magnitudes were less. And now it seems we're in this third era where in the last you know, 15 years or so, things have really started accelerating. Um, so using that weird record to come up with the 200 year statistic is gonna be problematic. So that's, that's one way. And then the other way is through you know, the rainfall, um, which again is changing through time, but it seemed like that event in some areas was close to even the 500 year. In, in a couple of pockets where we got you know, upwards of 12 inches in 12 hours in some cases. So just a ton, ton of rain coming down. And then one more sort of like background physical question is the, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier about the topography of the driftless. Does that lead to a propensity for floods which cause damage or is there like, and you talked about the soil conservation movement and lowering flood magnitude. Is that some channelization that humans are doing? So are like, what, what's going on in the landscape there? Is it more, does it have a higher propensity for flooding or? Yeah, so I think that, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is just the relationship between slope and this kind of rainfall runoff relationship. So, you know, no matter where you are, if it rains hard enough, you're going to get some runoff. It's depending on the land cover and the vegetation and the soil. Anywhere you are, you, you can generate runoff. But once you do generate runoff, then the, the question is, how quickly does it move downstream and join up with other drops of water and other streams to create, you know, like a flood? And so if the landscape is steep, that rate at which that water travels after it has been uh, generated as a runoff is much quicker. And so you get water kind of piling on top of water and you can really start to see these streams and rivers increasing in their surface elevations. So similar to, you know, like a slot canyon out west, like some of these, these systems can be really, really flashy. So that, that makes it definitely more damaging and it also makes it just harder to be warned that things are, are coming. And so that definitely can increase the, the risks to communities. And then I guess the other thing I would mention is this kind of feedback process that I, I mentioned earlier between sediment and water. And so a steeper landscape, you're also gonna have more erosion and that erosion can then feed back into this process we were just talking about, like the speed at which runoff travels to the stream channel. So you start getting gullies and rills, and now all of a sudden you've got a landscape that is just very well connected and things can just cruise down these highways uh, downstream. And then the other connection with sediment that's very relevant to the driftless area is, um, that sediment that had come down from the uplands, mostly in like the early 1900s and buried the floodplains, that has set up a situation where the stream channels can't spill out onto their floodplains during large events. And so the, the floods are just ripping through those, those valleys and they aren't able to spill out and kind of slow down 
So it's an interesting kind of one-two punch that happened that set this landscape up for some really big and damaging floods. So I guess, yeah, like the end of the day, you need big, broad, flat areas to slow water down. And that just doesn't exist in that landscape. Totally. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you don't have, like, if you're comparing to the rest of the state, uh, you don't have these wetlands, um, these kind of low gradient systems, poorly drained, that you could potentially restore if they were uh, drained by agriculture. Like we don't have those kind of opportunities in the driftless area because the only wetlands that really exist naturally are down in the valleys. And by the time you're in the valley, it, you've missed a lot of what you could have done further upstream. Um, not to say that there's not, I mean, this is something that we're working on actively mm -hmm. is there are opportunities down in the valley, but it's just a little bit more limited compared to the rest of the state. So I guess now my, my next question would be from your work, collecting those oral histories and, and all that you've done out there, how, how did people experience the flood? Like, so I guess that's both a question of like what happened, but also what, what have you learned from talking to people about how, how they experienced what happened? Wow. That's hard to even get a handle on. Um, it was experienced poorly. No, it was, um, truly though, it, it was experienced as one flood in a series of floods. So I think that's important, you know, that, that Eric mentioned the 2018 flood didn't come out of nowhere. There've been, um, it, more intense and more frequent floods accelerating over the last 90 years of people's lives out there. And they're well aware of that. So it's, it's the effect of that can be that you are used to floods. So you're a little numb to it. The, the other side of the effect, I think, is that you're exhausted with floods and they're just accumulating and the damage is accumulating. So I think it is important to think about the 2018 kind of big floods in that wider context, that people were already still kind of responding to previous year's floods when 2018 hit. And um, it was experienced very widely by folks all over the Kickapoo and Coon Creek watersheds. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, there was one town that was hit really badly all the towns were hit badly, you know, people up and down the valley were hit badly. So I think that's important too, that it, this was really a wide scale, you know, you think about, um, uh, you know, some sort of natural disaster that hits a corner of a neighborhood and then people around you can come help you. This is like wiping out the two watersheds um, and everybody is dealing with the problem all at the same time. I think in Vernon County, there was an estimated like $30 million of damage. That's $1,000 per person. You know, there aren't a huge amount of people out there. Um, these are relatively under-resourced counties. They're relatively isolated. And so a lot of the recovery kind of near-term and long-term happened in part through kind of community aid, mutual aid, church networks, like people really getting out to help their neighbors and each other. And um, that's an interesting dynamic I think that these floods as well, it's like people are used to dealing with floods and they're used to not getting a whole lot of state or federal support. And they're used to kind of figuring out how to make sense of that and how to recover from that in community with each other. So were there any like moments that, that stood out or any people that you met that like what, yeah, any, any sort of specific stories that come to mind that sort of demonstrate what you've been, what you were just talking about? 
Yeah, I think a few, and Eric, you should feel free to chime in as well. You know, the the stories are kind of broken into some different pieces, almost time-wise, spatially and time-wise. So there are a whole bunch of people who experience kind of the effect of essentially a wall of flood um, after the breach of a number of dams around the watershed. So that was sort of one experience of really like a wall of water coming at you and doing things like wiping buildings off of your property with uh, no remains. So for instance, one um, one gentleman was telling us, you know, he was worried that his house was going to go in the night. He was kind of waiting for his house to go in the night. It didn't, thankfully. And the next morning when he woke up and looked out at the outbuildings across his farm, they were gone, like without a trace, gone. And he talked to his daughter in lacrosse and said, the buildings are gone. She was like, no, no, what do you mean? <laughs> like, where? I, oh, there was a lot of damage. It's like, no, they're gone. The barns are gone without a trace. You know, 50 cows, gone. Cars, gone. So sort of that extent of things in the moment. Um, a lot of this happened in the dark, in, in the sort of upper watershed. So people just having these really visceral kind of sensory memories of just the sound and the feel of things, but sound was huge in people's stories. So I think the that experience of just a torrent of water kind of ripping through your house, through your basement, through your first floor, being stuck in your house was very present in, in a lot of these stories. But then also, I think something they really highlight, and a lot of these stories were gathered several months later, a year later, just the ways that people are still struggling and responding over time. So I think one of the things I talk a lot about with my students who have supported the project is that for folks who have not experienced floods and maybe just read about floods in the news, floods are typically typically covered in news media as they happen, you know, maybe a couple days later, kind of cleanup efforts in the days following the flood. Um, people are dealing with floods for a year, many years, multiple years, dealing with mold, dealing with rebuilding things, rebuilding infrastructure. Um, those sort of long-term chronic experiences were huge and people talked about them. And then I think one of the really key issues that came up in these stories is the acute mental health needs of folks who have experienced floods. And, you know, I made a comment just this week, we had all of this rain in Madison and uh, I was physically ill, like physically ill by proxy, having listened to a hundred people tell their stories about feeling physically ill about rain. It really impacted um, how I experienced that at this moment. And that's that's absolutely absolutely true of folks out there too, just sort of dealing with the, the dread, um, kind of being haunted by these extreme rain events that that Eric really described. So I think those, um, without, without getting too personal into people's individual stories, I think that sort of captures, you know, the flood itself, the sort of terrifying experience of the flood itself, the long, slow recovery, the kind of exhaustion of that, and then also, I think the other thing that really exists across these um, stories gathered in the stories from the flood archive is that these aren't all about trauma. <laughs> like these stories aren't all bad and they aren't all traumatic um, that people are often pointing to these really beautiful acts 
by neighbors and strangers and folks coming to help. Um, ways that folks set up, you know, clothing donation drives overnight, food drives, um, getting people medicine, getting people where they needed to be, just like really responding in community to a gigantic crisis um, and having a huge amount of strength and clarity about how that works and how to move forward together. So I think those are really some of the keys that stick out for me from the, the stories from the flood project. Yeah, I mean, Caroline has such a better sense of, of the stories. Um, but I think one of the, the things that came up also in a, so the water resources management practicum uh, focused on the Coon Creek uh, watershed and, and the floods uh, for their, their project. And one of the things that they highlighted was um, just the challenge that the small municipalities face when they get hit kind of back to back year after year almost with these floods it's like they're applying for funds from fema to repair something from a flood like two floods ago <laughs> like they're they're just getting so backed up and they just don't have the staff to write these applications for for fema support let alone like have somebody get a grant or have the forethought to be like how can we be more resilient in the face of these increasingly frequent floods. And so, I, you know, we, we talk a lot about like who, who is responsible for, for helping these communities um, become more resilient and because they're just stretched for, for resources. And, and we know it's gotta be a, a, a project, an effort kind of together, like they need to lead, but they need help um, and resources. So I think that that came out in, in, I guess, not the interviews specifically, but definitely in discussions with, with folks in the region. Yeah, definitely. So I guess my next question is maybe two questions in one, but you've talked a little bit now about what the, what, what y'all do, like collecting these stories, doing the, the watershed modeling. What, what does the outcome look like? Like what, what do y'all produce? And then the second part of that question is how does it feed, like feed back into the community? Is what you're doing benefiting the community? How so? That sort of thing. Yeah. Great question. I can start maybe mm -hmm. Caroline. Sure. I can. So the, the part of the project that Caroline and I are, are on together with Rebecca Lave, who's at Indiana University, project funded by the National Science Foundation. My main role is to develop this web-based decision support tool, um, along with uh, a graduate student, Paige Stork, who's really gonna be leading that component. And, and what that's trying to do is leverage uh, an existing kind of project led by the NRCS, so Natural Resources Conservation Service. And this, their project came about after the 2018 floods and after the dam breaches. And, the reason that they got implicated was you know, these dams were built by NRCS funding. I mean, they were formerly the Soil Conservation Service back in the 50s and 60s, but they were able to secure some federal funding to develop what's called a, a watershed plan uh, project and answered this question of what the heck do we do now? We've got five breach dams what are we going to do? So as part of that effort, they're developing a, a couple of different models. So 
two main models. The first, what's called a, a rainfall runoff model. And so this is a model of a watershed and basically takes in information related to rainfall and predicts how much runoff is coming out the bottom of the watershed, given all the things that we talked about, slope, soils, land cover. And, and then the second model is modeling the actual stream network hydraulics. So it takes that runoff and translates it into water surface elevations and uh, flood inundation area. And once those models are developed, you can start playing games or scenarios like, okay, what if we uh, repaired all the dams and how does that compare to without dams? Or what if we start playing around with different agricultural practices in the uplands? What does that mean in terms of flood inundation for that five inch rain events or something? And, and so a lot of work is going into that modeling uh, effort. And what we're hoping to do is, is take that, those models and turn it into this tool that's gonna be web-based and basically making a model of the models. So it's a simplified version of it, but ideally somebody could come in to that site and say, okay, I'm interested in working with the people that uh, live in this watershed. They wanna do this, this, and that practice. What does that mean for the, the village of Coon Valley in terms of flooding? So, I mean, I don't have any, like, I don't wanna be naive about the power of a tool like that. Like, it's not gonna solve the problems, right? But I, I hope that at least it can be used to maybe leverage additional resources to the community because showing that certain practices on the ground can't actually impact things downstream is actually a pretty good thing to have in your pocket when you're asking grant funders for money. So that's at least one of the ways I'd like the tool to be used eventually. But then, you know, I, I do also hope that it can be kind of a, a learning tool and, and, and also a tool to kind of explore like what's possible in this region. And not saying that we have all the answers, but once you start talking about changing land practices, like you really need to have a two-way conversation with the people that live there to know what is possible and and it can also provide like a sense of, of agency. Like, I don't think there's much of that right now because of these, you know, these floods that are increasing in frequency that there's kind of this feeling of, of helplessness. And um, if we can explore at least some practices that can be done on the ground, you know, it, it may not help with some of the very largest events, um, but we can show where it does help potentially. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm excited about with sort of where our work is headed, and especially the, the work with Rebecca Lave at Indiana, and with Paige Stork and Sydney Wydell, who are graduate students at UW-Madison, is in part, I think, the um, we're focused on process as deliverable, in part. So like, I, I think one of the things that's really valuable about the perspectives we come from and what we're hoping to do in this work is to foreground process and methodology <laughs> rather than, okay, we're gonna, we'll get back to you in three years and we'll give you the right answer. 
you know, that's really not what the project is about, that, that instead in building out of research interviews and surveys and like showing up to attend watershed council meetings and Vernon County Flood Mitigation Alliance meetings, just like getting out there and talking to people, that ideally all of that will shape the sort of interaction with the model that Eric is describing so that the model becomes, uh, or the tool built out of the model becomes not the thing that gives the right answer, but it's like the thing that facilitates the conversations that people want to have about how they want to move forward together and gives them some more equipment for making sense of some of the consequences of some of those decisions. And I love the sort of practical side that that Eric is mentioning of um, the tool as justification for requesting funding to do particular things like that is really, really very powerful. And actually, the project I was working on when Eric and I met back at Dartmouth, you know, the, the story that kind of kicked off on this talk is I was working with the EPA's Atlantic Ecology Division on a tool for the Wanasquatucket River watershed in Rhode Island about prioritizing urban restoration projects. And their goal was, okay, we want you to make a tool, but we want the tool to prioritize public engagement, like having conversations about things. And also we just want to be able to use it to justify <laughs> requesting funding. And that's really pragmatic. And, and I do see kind of resonances of that in what we're hoping for, that by spending a lot of time hanging out and talking to people and listening to people and thinking about what they are hoping for, what they need, what they're frustrated with, that that hopefully helps us kind of facilitate some conversations about that with some tools to kind of think together about how to move forward. You know, and, and you asked the question, Rudy, like how, how do you know if it's working? Is it useful? Um, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? It's like, we hope it is, we want it to be, we want to um, be open to criticism and open to correction and open to what people want. And that's um, that's a vulnerable place to be as a researcher, to be honest, instead of just like, oh, I'm just going to hide in my office and I'll figure out something and publish it, that we really are trying to be responsive to our community partners across the watersheds um, and really listen to what they're trying to do and take some cues from them about how to move forward. and certainly we screw that up or I will say I screw that up but I think we're trying to be in close communication with people to make this work hopefully as like useful and pragmatic as possible. I think y'all have anticipated what was going to be my my last question too that I put on there about like what's the benefit of of having people in the humanities and sciences working together more generally and I think that sort of undermining the we can come up with a right answer and give it to people as scientists is a a positive thing and i think it sort of works the other way too of using this this information to like help out people in the humanities to to like grant get some grounding just from my perspective so i don't know I, if y'all wanted to say anything else but i but i think you you, you were hitting on those themes in your answers to the the outcome question yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it was never part of my formal training. Like, I, I definitely got training in kind of interdisciplinary work within the biophysical sciences. Like, I started off in environmental engineering and then hydrology and fluvial geomorphology, um, and then a little bit into ecology. 
and had a, a master's advisor at uh, University of California, Davis, that was very interested in um, policy implications of research. And that had a big influence on me, like making sure that I was doing science, at least that was relevant, <laughs> not maybe necessarily doing deep engagement with with communities, but at least doing things that are relevant like that always is, is very important to me. And but then I think after my PhD working with um, some other social scientists and then Caroline, you know, really gave me new insight into just how important it is to have that expertise in a, a project like this that has all these different dimensions to it and where you are hoping to make an impact. It's great that, that if you're a biophysical scientist or a hydrologist that wants to make an impact, but if you don't have you know, good collaborators um, and can kind of tap into the humanities and social science, like it's just not gonna be as effective and, and successful. And, it, and plus it's also not as fun, <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Right. Like our work is fun, actually, is, is a beautiful thing to say yeah. is like, I love talking to Eric and talking to Rebecca and talking to Paige and Sydney, our students at, at, for coming from very different perspectives, looking at landscapes differently, looking at questions differently. And I think all of us are people who are excited by that. Like, oh, I didn't think of that. You know, oh, I, I hadn't read that. What, what do you know about that? What do you know about that? And that that is part of the fun of this work. I think too that, you know, the humanities as a trained humanist, I love the idea that, that the, the humanities can help, you know, support this work. Um, particularly, I think is important is that my training comes a lot from community engagement, community-based learning, like critical approaches to service learning. Um, and that is a key part of this project, I think. But also when I am talking to my humanist colleagues, I am often advocating for more understanding of the biophysical sciences. So I do think it's it's really important to be kind of working dynamically. You know, I think to understand the sort of power of story about floods and landscapes and landscape change, I think it's really important to understand landscapes and floods and landscape change. Like I've invested a lot of time in learning about the sort of biophysical aspects of the systems that I work in. And Eric has spent a lot of time learning about the history and social dimensions of the landscape we're working in. Um, and that kind of investment is hard to do and I think really important. And our colleague Rebecca Lave at Indiana is the same way. It's like she's really interested in people and story and she's really attentive to landscape and how those things affect each other. And that really, I think that's what sort of unites our perspectives on this project is just, you need pieces of all of that to make sense of, of what's happening. Yeah, and I would maybe add too that grad students now, I think are, are more expecting that kind of uh, interdisciplinary look and also, well, it's called transdisciplinary when we we actually go beyond just the academia and and also have that deep engagement and kind of co-learning with the communities that we want to um, impact and, and have, make a difference. So um, I think the graduate students are always, it seems to me like even a little bit 
beyond us sometimes in, in figuring out like what they need <laughs> from grad school and, and how to prepare them for a cool career. So I think we're pretty fortunate with who we have right now on the project. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're a little bit past four, so I don't want to keep us too long because I feel like we could talk for another hour and get continue getting great <laughs> material. Um, but uh, I guess b before I stop the recording here, are there any last thoughts or anything that you felt like you wanted to say coming in and didn't get a chance to? I mean, I think it was so nice to have Eric and Kurt on before this because, yeah, they did a great job of describing kind of some of these changes that are important context for flooding and and kind of the land use change and, and what all was involved in that but it was pretty phenomenal like the this is kind of a a really clear example of a place where things kind of went off the rails in terms of the the prairie oak savanna being turned into cropland and pasture and leading to devastating consequences. But then, you know, soil conservation coming into play and, and, and spreading through this kind of co-learning approach and then actually having like a noticeable difference. It took a while <laughs> and that taking a while to actually see that positive impact actually led to some of like the dam building efforts. Um, because people wanted solutions quicker than what this kind of spread of practices was, was promising to do. So yeah, I, I just think they did a nice job with that history and I just thinking about the best ways to, to connect um, what was been, what was said by them and, and then this flooding discussion. So I hope, I hope enough connection was made, but it was good to listen to them ahead of time for sure. And I yeah, think the, the audience will benefit from that too. I, I would also give a shout out to listening to the previous podcast if you haven't already. But also I, I would highlight, you know, and Rudy and Eric, you, you heard me say this already, but Rudy, I, I love the way you closed that last podcast focusing on, you know, the instruction to pay attention to your places, learn their stories, tell their stories. I, I think there is so much to be learned from our shared past, including the really contentious and difficult moments um, and the past of the landscape, just to sort of think ahead about how to move forward in really tricky times and, and how to think about how communities can do that and can do that with the sort of deep perspective of deep time, right, of, uh, of human time and beyond. So I, I sort of love that as a, a way to think about just all of the promise for kind of moving a forward, even in this really particularly tricky moment. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Thanks so much to Caroline and Eric for sharing your fascinating and boundary-breaking work with us. For more about the Stories from the Flood Project, or to share your story if you were affected by the floods we talked about today, visit wisconsinfloodstories.org. Just a reminder, you can find more episodes, a link to support the show on Patreon, my contact info, and our social media info at our website, uofpod.org.